This morning, we're going to end up the first half of our series in the book of Ephesians. Now, when I say ended up, it's very carefully structured by Paul to bring us to this understanding that God is building a community, a forever family, an elect chosen people that he has carefully planned out and brought together. And interestingly, there was a racial issue that was large at the time. There was a looming racial issue because Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other. So Paul, through the Spirit of God, is writing this letter to explain to all of those who would read this and to us as well that God's design is to call people out of this world, but not so they could experience individual Christianity, but that they could experience a corporate experience of God in the community that's, that's called the church of Jesus Christ. And God uses actually three metaphors for the church in the book of Ephesians. He calls it his body, Christ is the head. He calls it a building being built together. And then in Ephesians 5, he calls it a bride. And each of those metaphors indicates something about this community. And so if you've been with us for the last you know, six weeks or so, as we walk through the first three chapters, we saw that Primarily, it's not what God expects from us. It's what God has done for us. And we need to keep celebrating that, that we are chosen, we are adopted, we are forgiven, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And it's all for the praise of God's glory. And the last couple of weeks, we've been looking in Ephesians 2 and 3, where we saw that not only did God individually take us out of our sin and death and raise us with Christ, but corporately, we're learning that he's brought us together into this new union called the church. But as Paul closes out this section, he is about to let the rubber meet the road. Next week, we're going to start in 4.1 where he says, now therefore, in light of all of these things, here's how I want you to walk. Here's how I want you to live. So this morning, we're going to look at Paul's second prayer. But remember, we're seeing it within the context of him recognizing that these Jews and Gentiles now have to live out their Christian faith it's one thing on paper to talk about Christian faith. It's another thing to live it out in your home and in your church. Somebody once said, to dwell above with the saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, that's a different story. So this is a really cool prayer. And actually, what I would suggest is we are going to practice a prayer lesson this morning. Now, I hope all of you know that you need to pray. Paul and Peter both said, I know you know these things. I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. And so we all know we need to pray. What this passage is going to teach us is how to pray better, how to pray more biblically, how to pray more in line with the will of God. So at the end of this message, we're going to take a moment or two and just pray this passage back to the Lord as we apply it to our lives. So if you'll start with me in chapter 3, Benjamin has prayed for our time in the Word. Let's begin in verses 14, and the first thing we're going to do is read down to verse 19. Now, what I want you to look for, just to kind of prepare you, is often Paul's prayers are like a stair step, okay? He'll say, I want you to, I want God to do this, and as a result, that'll lead to this, and as a result, that'll lead to this, and ultimately, that'll lead to this. And so the goal here is as we're walking through this prayer, Watch where he wants to end up. What we're going to see is where he wants to be up is that we as Christians are experiencing God's love in our lives, okay? 
So let's, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll go back to it. Paul says, for this reason, since we are this called-out community, and since I'm in prison, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Here's a step. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now we're going to step up to the final step that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So the, so the end of this prayer is that we might be experiencing this full sense of the love and presence of God in our lives, both towards him and towards one another. Now let's, let's walk back through this and see how he got there. First of all, Paul's going to talk about his posture, which is kind of interesting. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Actually, that wasn't really common for Jews. Jews often stood when they prayed. There aren't a whole lot of times in the Old Testament where this expression is used. And it's interesting that Paul uses it here. Generally speaking, when we bow our knees, it's because we are, we are ascribing greatness to someone above us. In fact, some of the commentators suggested that this goes all the way back to Isaiah when Isaiah, uh, the Lord says to Isaiah, one day every knee will bow. So I don't think the emphasis here is posture. Um, I used to pray on my knees and then I hurt my back doing that. So I don't pray on my knees anymore, but, but I, in essence, if you follow what I'm saying, I try to pray on the knees of my heart because the idea here is it's a submission. But then the second thing I want you to think about, so when you're praying, you know, if you're like, well, the only time I pray is when I'm driving or <clears throat> during commercials, like, does that, does that indicate a real serious posture of submission to God where you're seeking him? But you'll notice that Paul will often say something about God. He doesn't just say, I'm praying to God, okay? He'll often add things. So as you're praying, mix it up a little bit. Instead of just saying, dear God, Think about how Daniel prayed, O God who dwells between the cherubim. So let's see what Paul says about God here. He says, I bow my knees to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, why this? Well, there's a couple possibilities here. One translation says the whole family in heaven and on earth. Now, if that's what Paul meant here, who would he be talking about? The God and Father of the whole family in heaven and earth. I don't think he's meaning all humanity. I think he's meaning believers. Well, why would he say the ones in heaven and on earth? Because right now, there are many believers on earth, but there are also a whole bunch of them up in heaven already. Hebrews 12 says, we have come to the spirits of just men made perfect and an innumerable company of angels. So on the one hand, I like that because Paul's talking about the body of Christ. And so he could be saying here, I, I pray to the God who is the, the father of all of his family. But 
most translations don't go there. Instead, because more likely in the original language, it's better translated every family in heaven and on earth. And so here, if, if he's simply saying every family in heaven and on earth, this would go beyond just humanity because it would also indicate the angelic beings and perhaps even not just the good ones. Because remember, there are both godly angels, the elect chosen in the heavenly places, but there are also fallen principalities and powers in the heavenly places. If that's Paul's intention here, and I think it is, is to simply say, hey, it's all about God. It's all about his authority, because in essence, when you're the father, he doesn't just say the father of everybody. He goes, by whom every family is named. When you name something, that is in essence a demonstration of your authority and dominion over them. You say, where do you get that from? Well, remember when God created Adam and he said, I want you to take dominion over the earth. And then it was Adam's responsibility then to take those animals and name them because he, he, was, he was showing his dominion and authority over them. In fact, I'll use another basketball analogy. Sometimes I'll say to young people, I'm going to school you. Other times I'm say, I'll say, if I win, I'm your dad. I named you, right? Because you're, you're sort of showing. Now, this is what God is saying. He's saying, you know, I have dominion over all of the universe. This is the God to whom we pray. Now, it may very well be here that he is including here the family of God because he's about to pray for them to get along. But it's kind of cool. It gives you a lot to meditate on. So what's the first thing he asked God to do? He said he, that he would grant you, but before he tells us what he grants us, Paul will frequently remind us of the infinite storehouse, the unlimited supply of stuff that God has. So before he'll ask God for something, he'll take us to the warehouse and say, let me remind you, <laughs> there's no limit on this. If I'm going to ask him for grace, there's no limit on it. If I'm going to ask him for power, <laughs> don't worry about him running short. Don't worry about inventory. So it's, it's a little bit like James chapter 1 when James says, whenever you encounter trials, he goes, ask God for wisdom, but ask in faith to the God who, who gives generously and does not upbraid or, or correct us. Like, you know, don't waste. So, so before he talks about God, what he wants them to grant, he says, God will grant you according to the riches of his glory. In other words, just stop and think for a moment. Everything and beyond what we can imagine, God has limited, unlimited resources. So if we ask him for help, strength, power, peace, he's got so much. He's not going to go, well, you know, times are tight. We're going to have to ration. We're going to have to kind of cut back a little bit. So what does he ask God to do? He says that he would grant you, according to this resource of his glorious riches, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. When I teach the definition of the Trinity, I say there is one God who exists in three equal and eternal persons. They're the same in nature, but they're distinct in their roles. So each of the members of the triune God, particularly when it comes to salvation, there seems to be an emphasis on certain works that they do. So often the Father is the one who plans our salvation, 
The Lord Jesus is the one who purchases our salvation, but the Spirit is the one who powerfully applies our salvation. So quite often when Paul wants to talk about God's power, he reminds us that it's mediated through the Spirit. And so this is one of the themes in the New Testament. Jesus said, you shall receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, our gospel didn't just come in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And so when you think of experiencing God's power, think of the Holy Spirit. Now, as a side note here, people often ask me, or not often, sometimes ask me, is it okay to pray to the Holy Spirit? And, and while I wouldn't say it's wrong, you'll never find an example in the Bible of anyone praying to the Holy Spirit. Not because he's not God, not because it's wrong, but it, it's just not a biblical pattern. Because if ever there was a time for Paul to pray to the Holy Spirit, he could have cut out the middleman, right? He could have just said, now I pray to the Holy Spirit to give you power. But instead, he said, I ask you that God would grant you power through his spirit. So I would encourage you to, to go in that direction. Lord, I need the power of the Holy Spirit today. It's not because the Holy Spirit's embarrassed, but, but Jesus said when the spirit comes to this earth to, to mediate the new covenant, he said, he won't speak of himself, he'll glorify me. So the attention is to be directed toward Christ through the power of the Spirit. So, what, why? Why does he ask God to strengthen us with power? Well, okay, and where? In your inner man. Let me remind you that we have both an outer physical body, which we all, for the most part, we, we know how to take care of that thing. In fact, Paul observed in Ephesians 5, he goes, no one ever hated his own body, but he nourishes and cherishes it. I mean, you have to be really demented to destroy yourself, right? because we take care of our physical body, but what we often fail to recognize is that's only a part of who we are, that we have an inner man, that we have this, the Bible sometimes referred to it as the soul, sometimes it'll refer to it as the spirit. There is some sort of a distinction between the soul and spirit, but, but I think that's part of who our inner man is. Don't neglect your inner man. If you're a Christian, Jesus said, we don't live by bread alone, right? People don't go, oh, gosh, I haven't eaten for a week. I just haven't had time, right? But yet, frequently people go, oh, I haven't read my Bible or prayed for a week. You're neglecting your inner man. So ask God to help you to recognize that we're, we're a holistic being. We're not just physical beings. And, and especially in America where, where we're affluent and, and so frequently indulging our comforts of our outer man, but those of you who are starting to feel creakety and achety and losing your hair and, you know, losing your, losing your glimmer, your natural emollients, Paul said that. He goes, our outer man is perishing, but our inner man is being renewed by God. But part of that is as we pray. So, Lord, give me strength. Give me more strength. So that's a practical thing. Give me more strength in my inner man. But why? Not to stop at that step. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, first of all, the word translated so that is an interpretive decision. Uh, there's a, 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 a PhD scholar by the name of O'Brien whose view is that verse 17 should not be translated so that, but rather he sees this as a parallel to being strengthened. In other words, 
I want you to be strengthened with power, namely, in other words, Christ dwelling in your heart. Possible, but, but let's not miss the point here. Why would Paul ask God for Christ to dwell in the heart of people who are already Christians? I thought Christ already dwells in me. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ dwells in me? Yes. And so the answer here is, is to be found in the meaning of the word dwell. There are two words, at least, for dwell in the New Testament. One of them means to, to, to dwell in the sense of a sojourn. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna stay here for a while as you're passing through. The other one means to settle down. It would sort of be the difference between being a, a wandering nomad, which is true, we're strangers and aliens in the world, versus a settler where you're putting down stakes, you're, or, or as we say, we're putting down roots. Interesting, right? I'm putting down roots. So he says, I, I pray that God will strengthen you, namely so that Christ will put down roots in your heart. So this indicates that while Christ may live inside of us, is he putting down roots? Is he the centerpiece of your home? Or if you've never read this wonderful little devotional called My Heart, Christ's Home, it's a story of a guy who invites a, a visitor in and then he says, here, I want you to just sit in the parlor and I'll be right with you. And of course, in the analogy, it's Jesus. But day by day, the guy passes by the parlor and keeps forgetting about this guest. You know, and of course, you follow the metaphor that eventually you go, wait a minute, I invited Christ into my life and now I've sort of abdicated him to one little area. So the idea, I think, is that Christ, if he's putting down roots in my heart, he is becoming Lord more and more in every area of my life. It's not just my Sunday morning hour, but is Christ Lord over my recreation, Lord over my time, Lord over my finances, Lord over my marriage, Lord over my sexuality, so that Christ is more and more controlling me. And go ahead and try that. You go, oh yeah, I'm just gonna let Christ rule in all my heart. Yeah, let me know how that goes. You better pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Because the flesh is strong. The flesh doesn't want Christ to settle down and rule in my heart. The flesh wants what it wants, and the flesh lusts against the Spirit. And so the idea here is that we're praying, God, would you strengthen me through your Holy Spirit so that more and more Christ is the centerpiece of my life, that, that he's the Lord. He's the one that I'm fixing my affections on each day. He's the one that I'm, that I'm as, as Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, that he captivates my, my affections and that he's more and more part of my life, okay? But... Then Paul says, being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and length and depth. Now, just real quick here. All of us, if you're a Christian, to some level, we know that Christ loves us, okay? In fact, even if you're not a Christian, many of you grew up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But the word here comprehend is a little bit deeper than just know like the devil knows there's a jesus but there's no relational part so what paul's praying for here i think there's an experiential element here when he says that you might comprehend the love of christ it's more than just like 
A, Christ loves me. B, he doesn't love me. A, I know Christ loves me. But there would be an experience, right? A, 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 I hate to get mystical here, but I think in a certain sense, Paul has gone that it would be more than just a textbook understanding that Jesus loves me, but that the Spirit would minister to my very being. It's kind of like what Paul said in Romans 5, that the love of God would be poured out in my heart. And, and songwriters have, 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 have penned words, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus washing o'er me, flowing o'er me like waves. So pray for that. that. Who wouldn't want that, right? Who wouldn't want to, you ready? Experience more of a conscious sense that Jesus loves me, right? Does that make sense? So God, please strengthen me through the Spirit. I want Christ to be Lord in my life. And I want to experience growing sense of Christ's love for me. Now, now you're, you're going, well, what am I supposed to do, Pastor Tom? Just like feel Jesus holding me in his arms? I think there's lots of room for this. Don't, don't get caught up. Some of you have more emotional, you know, personality than others. So let's not get carried away here. But let's not go to the other stream and go, I just know Jesus loves me in my cerebral cortex. And that's it. So, but notice also that this is not just to be individual. It's corporate. That with all the saints... So I want to suggest that one of the greatest times that we experience the love of Christ is corporately, not just when Jesus and I are out in a cabin. And that we ought to think about that. He says, I pray that you, together with all the saints, will be able to comprehend the love of Christ. And then he goes on to say this, this love of Christ, knowing this love of Christ, surpasses knowledge. In other words, we'll never fully know it. It's inexhaustibly so profoundly great. We'll never fully know it, but we can know it more than we used to. I can, I can as, this, as the hymn writer used to say, I'm pressing on my upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. I want to go to higher ground. Lord, I want to experience more of your love, but I want you to think about why. Why does Paul want us to be experiencing more of God's love. You ready for the kicker? Because it's not until we experience Christ's love that we're free to express Christ's love. Starting next week, it's going to turn and be very much focused on expressing Christ's love to others, right? That's pretty hard to do if you haven't experienced Christ's love. He said, well, give me an example. Well, Jesus holds a really high standard. He goes, you need to forgive others. You're like, what? That person abused me. That person's wicked. He goes, yeah, and here's why I want you to forgive them. Because I have forgiven you. And so the emphasis isn't like, all right, I need to try harder to love people. My spouse is annoying. My kids are annoying. My neighbors are annoying. My church members are annoying. But I just need to love them. They don't have my political opinion. I need to love them. Whoa, I don't want to get anywhere. But God, help me to experience more of Christ. If Christ loves me, then you're going to bring me to a place where it will, freely I have received, freely I will give. So pray. And here, here's, here's the sum of what I want you to pray, and I think God's teaching us. Pray that our church and individually, we will experience more of Christ's love. So that 
we will express more of Christ's love. And by the way, love in the New Testament is grounded in knowledge. As we grow in our understanding of the gospel, that is the mediating point. It's as I'm learning what the scriptures tell me about this unfailing love. See, Paul walked in this consciousness of Christ's love. This is just how he lived. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. You know, the other day I was watching a TV show. It really struck me. They, they, they actually had, um, uh, they showed this guy's behavior, and, and, and I felt embarrassed and ashamed because I used to be like that. And, and I started thinking, oh, man, I, I, don't, I was ashamed of myself as I thought about my past. But then the Lord reminded me, Tom, that person's dead. That was really encouraging for me to remember. You know what? Tom, don't, don't, don't fear and shame over that. That Tom's dead. Why do you need to be ashamed of something that that person's dead? He's already paid for. We, I, don't you know you've died with Christ? And so as I, as I remember that, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. This is how he lived. So, hey, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so as I go through my daily life, he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And by the way, did you note he said here, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. We have to believe God. But faith in what? He goes, faith in Christ who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. So what fueled Paul was this ongoing sense of Christ's love for him. Not obligation, but Christ's love for him. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels me. So, we're going to pray to experience God's love so that we can express God's love. And one of the things that will keep you from experiencing God's love is when you are grieving the Holy Spirit and not allowing, when I am not allowing Christ to dwell freely in my life and I want to, I want to Frank Sinatra and have it my way, That'll put the squelch on the experience of the spirit of God's love. All right, finally, Paul gives a doxology here. It's a, it's a benediction where he's just going to teach us one more thing about prayer, and then we're going to pray it. He says, in closing, whereas the last passage was about the love of God, now it's going to be about the power of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Now, earlier in chapter 1, he, he prayed about that power. Remember, he said, I want you to know the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. Now he goes, I want you to experience the power of God working within us. And then he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. God gets glory through individual parachurch ministries. He gets glory through Bethany Christian Services. He gets glory through Operation Christmas Child. But his home base, his temple, the place where his glory is most gloriously expressed and displayed is in the church. To him be the glory in the church. And so the, the, the point I want you to note here is that God wants us to pray to display his power in the church so that he might receive glory in the church. You say, whatever I do, do it to the glory of God. Do you go to church? Nah, 
Are you part of a church? No, not really. Do you serve in a church? Not so much. How can you do all that you do to the glory of God when, in fact, God's principal place of bringing glory to himself is building Christ-centered Christian communities, brothers and sisters who are committed to making disciples, disciplining one another, encouraging one another, supporting one another, praying for one another, unified under leadership. So let's close in prayer right now. We're going to ask God for two things this morning. This world has fallen apart, isn't it? It's spinning out of control from a human standpoint, but not to God. God's just setting the table. He's setting the table so that he can express miraculous demonstrations of his power through the community of God's people. The world has no answers. The world doesn't have the answers. We have the answer, the way, the truth, and the life. And so let's pray that this virus, these politics, these racial issues, it's all to be used by God as the church lives out and prays. I want you to believe God. My wife and I this morning were talking about someone who's wandered from the faith. Do I believe God enough to bring them back? Do I believe that he's able to do abundantly beyond all that I ask or think. Do I believe, this week the Lord reminded me, the effectual, fervent prayers of righteous men and women accomplish much. So we have a great God, don't we? And he's bringing glory to himself as he's building a church. And today might be the last day. He might say, this is the last one. My community's done. I'm coming back. But until then, we certainly have learned how to pray. So would you join me? Take a moment and ask God to strengthen you through the Spirit so that you have the power to let Christ and I have the power to let Christ reign and dwell and settle down in my life and be the Lord. Surrender if there's areas where you've closed off rooms to Jesus. Open up, give him the key, open the doors, wide open. Now pray that you will experience the love of Christ so that you can express it. I've got nothing left, Lord, but if you fill me with your love, I can go on. And lastly, take a moment now and think of the biggest thing that you've, you've longed for God to do, something that perhaps has been a long-time burden. Ask him according to his power that's working to, to do this work. But ask yourself, is it for his glory? Pray that God will get glory as he manifests the presence and power of Jesus to change our lives and to hold out the word of life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your family. Lord, I'm sure there are some here who are not yet part of your family. I pray that you'll display your power by awakening them 
convicting them of their sins and then showing them that Christ loved them and died for them. Bring them to yourself, just like you did us. And send us out on a mission this week. We are conduits of your love and your power. And may all that is done in our family, in our personal lives, and in this church be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Start reading chapter 4.